welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Julie and I were married on August 18th of 1990, so we're 30 years into it. We committed to each other on that day so many years ago before God and before a gathering of our friends and family. And when the ceremony was over, we had gone from being two single people to being one married couple. And when the events of August 18th, 1990 concluded, the wedding ceremony and the reception, it was then, as many of you know, that the marriage actually began. And our relationship today is quite different than it was 30 years ago. Our perceptions and our perspectives, our ideas and our beliefs about ourselves, about each other, and about our relationship have been reworked over the years. They've been transformed in some cases. In some cases, putting it bluntly, they've been outright obliterated and done away with. In some cases, in many cases, we have been turned inside out over the last 30 years. We have spent the better part of the last 10,950 days together, interacting, relating, laughing, enduring losses, arguing about whatever, having and raising children, moving across the country, making meals, cleaning up kitchens, talking about our budget, and a myriad of other experiences. And imagine if 30 years after our wedding day, we were basically the same people. Imagine what that would be like to think 30 years in a relationship with somebody that is intended to be as close as a marriage is, and we were basically the same people. And we thought basically the same way about ourselves, about each other, and about our relationship. On our wedding day, we stood and we told each other we loved each other, and today we tell each other we love each other, but today, love means something radically different from what it meant 30 years ago. It's richer, has more texture and contours and depth to it because life has happened, growth has happened, challenges have come, suffering's been endured, I have changed, Julie has changed, we have changed in countless ways. And that is, I think, how it is supposed to be. Marriage is not the one-time event of a wedding ceremony. Marriage is not a static or fixed condition. Rather, it is a process of ongoing conversion and ongoing growth, continuously ebbing and flowing and being challenged and changed and stretched and transformed. And being Christian, I want to suggest to you, is similar, or at least it is supposed to be. And today we begin what I think is a really important series in the life of our church. We're calling it Conversions, Being Born Again and Again and Again. This is important because of the topics we will consider. We're going to dive down into the depth of some of these things and do our best to unpack some tough things. It's important as well because we are in an election season where tensions are high, animosity is high, anger seems to be everywhere, and in the midst of the noise, the question looms, how should Christians live in the midst of this? So I want to begin by talking about unconverted Christians. This is kind of an in-your-face phrase, unconverted Christian. But this in-your-face phrase gets right to the heart of this 
series we begin today. Being Christian is like being married. Being Christian is not a one-time conversion experience that happens sometime in our past. I mean, that conversion experience is sort of like a wedding ceremony. It's an important event or an important moment or an important discovery, however it may come about. But then, as we know, the real adventure begins. So being Christian is not a static condition. It is similar to a marriage in that it is an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, whom we believe is alive and present with us. It is a dynamic relationship of discovery and renewal and rebirth, a lifelong process of conversion, of being born again and again and again. And this is the Christian adventure according to the scriptures. We can read about this all over the place. We read about it in Romans chapter 8. We read about it in Ephesians chapter 4. We read about it in Colossians chapter 3. We read about it throughout the book of James. And we could list many other places where we read about this adventure of conversion that is to be normative in the Christian's life. If I can press in just a bit, I think there are too many unconverted Christians in our nation. Static Christians. I know that may sound a bit rough, maybe a tad bit judgmental, but just hang with me. I think there are too many people who are unconverted Christians, people who have Christian as a title, but not a way of life. And I realize all of us in some way, in some ways, remain unconverted. I get that. But I'm talking about Christians who think they already know. Ideas are fixed. Perspectives are set. They think they already get it. The boundary lines of their faith are firmly set in stone, but their convictions and professions of faith do not produce what we might call a Christ-like character or Christ-likeness. We who claim to be Christians and part of Jesus' church are often not, if we're just candid about it, the salt of the earth or the light of the world. We've been seduced by things like power and politics. We've chosen anger over patience. We've chosen judgmental over gentle. And I see this in myself. I see it in other Christians. I see it in the big C Christian church in our nation. We had a conversion experience sometime in our past, but then we stopped converting. So there is this kind of rigidity. There's too much certainty. There's not enough humility. There's too much judgment. There's a crustiness to faith. And it is not winsome. It's not inviting. It's not exciting. I think there are too many unconverted Christians in our nation, people who are not being born again and again and again. And I wonder, could it be that the areas of our lives that we think we have already surrendered and sorted out are actually the unsurrendered areas of our lives because we are no longer open or humble to a fresh work of God's Spirit in those areas because we think we already have God's perspective in those areas. So it's like we post a do not enter sign over those parts of our lives. We've already got that one figured out, so we don't need a fresh work of God in that area. Could it be that those thoughts and attitudes and perspectives that we think are already conformed to the way and truth of Jesus are the precise areas where Jesus would like to teach us something new and transform us, maybe in ways we can't possibly fathom? 
An example of an area we may think we already get is straight from our scripture reading in Romans chapter 1. It's our perspective on the gospel of God, as Paul calls it. So today's topic in this first installment of this series is being converted from my gospel to the gospel. Think about it. What is the gospel? What runs through your mind when you hear the phrase, the gospel? Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The word in the Bible, gospel, means good news. And according to Jesus, the good news has to do with the kingdom of God. So did that come to mind when I asked the question, what is the gospel? When I said, what do you think about when you hear the phrase, the gospel did the kingdom or the kingdom of God? Was that near the front of your mind? Maybe we get the gospel, but maybe it's more my gospel than the gospel. It's the gospel I want or I like or I care about more than it is the actual gospel of God, as Paul puts it. And maybe we need a rebirth in our understanding and experience of the gospel. By the summer of 2000, I had been a Christian to that point for 17 years. And a series of events unfolded in the summer of 2000. And my understanding and experience of the gospel literally exploded into a million pieces. And a fresh perspective on the gospel grabbed a hold of me and turned me inside out and frankly continues to turn me inside out today. 17 years following Jesus at that point in 2000, but what I thought was the gospel in fact was my gospel. And the renewal all started with Jesus's words in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Conversion then, this idea of converting, of growth. Perhaps what needs to happen for some of us is we need to surrender our gospel so we can hear and receive and begin to live in the beautiful, the wonderful, the magnificent, the all-inclusive, the indescribable, life-changing, good news of God. So let's talk about good news in the first century. Gospel, as I said, means good news. And Roman heralds announced good news on a regular basis throughout the empire. So they would go into a city of the Roman Empire, like the city of Corinth or the city of Ephesus. And these Roman heralds would announce good news. Another background point, Julius Caesar had divine status in the minds of many Romans, so emperors who were his offspring, his sons, were called a son of God. He was thought divine, so emperors who were his sons were called a son of God. So a Roman herald might announce something like this, the good news is that Claudius is now emperor of the entire Roman world. He is a son of God. He is now Lord. He will bring peace and justice throughout the empire. 
Roman heralds might also announce an emperor's achievements in war. So a Roman herald might go to a busy street corner in some city and say, I have good news. Emperor Nero has defeated the barbarians and now he is lord of their Germanic lands. Well, the first Christians used the idea of good news to redirect focus away from the temporal reign and rule of the Roman emperor toward the eternal reign and rule of King Jesus. Listen to our scripture reading again in light of this first century context. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. That's a messenger. That's a herald. And set apart for the gospel good news of God. The good news he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Paul, just like Jesus, is usurping the greatest power on the planet in those words, Rome. And Paul is announcing that the world has forever changed. God's good news is that Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, is now King and Lord of everything and everyone. A new world or a new reality has begun in Jesus. And all who follow him are welcome in this new reality where he is the one who reigns as king. And this, my friend, is the good news. And T. Wright describes this by saying something happened in the past through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and something will happen in the future when he returns and makes all things new and right. And as a result, the present, right now, this moment and every moment is dramatically different. And everyone is invited to discover this and experience this and live this out in and through King Jesus. He is the door into this different reality. This is the good news, and it changes, quite literally, everything. Our attitudes, our actions, our beliefs, our perspectives on whatever, our sufferings, our losses, our pains, our joys, our disappointments, our choices. There is no arena of life untouched by this good news. If we shrink it, it is no longer the gospel. It is my gospel. And here's the thing. Everything in the Christian life hinges on retaining and preserving an expansive, mind-blowing, head-spinning, biblical realization of the gospel. Everything in the Christian experience starts with realizing how big this is, how mind-boggling this is, how life and eternity altering the good news is, how good the good news is, how this is God's good news to us. If we pinch it, if we restrict it, if we truncate it, if we shrink it, it will devolve into a boring, 
dusty relic that sits on some shelf of our lives and we occasionally look at it, but it does not filter into everything in the present. As N.T. Wright says, get the gospel right and everything else will come right. Thirdly, my gospel then may not be the gospel. A number of years ago, we had a service over in that building where we were talking about the same thing we're talking about today. And at the end of the service, we invited people to come forward and surrender whatever they thought was keeping them from a deeper experience with Jesus. And a guy came up who at the time was a leader in our church, a very significant leader in our church. He'd been a Christian his entire life. And he'd been at Oak Hills since the church started. And I was talking to him after the service. He remained up front at this kneeling station we had. And I was asking him how he was doing. And this is what he said to me. This isn't a direct quote, but it's the essence of it. He said, God said to me today, surrender the Christianity you have known your whole life so you can encounter, in Je you can encounter Jesus in ways you never have. Now, by all accounts, this guy was a, quote, mature Christian. But he was saying that he believed the thing that was in his way of experiencing God more fully was the Christianity he had embraced his whole life. And yes, we actually reshape the gospel in this way. My gospel may not be the gospel. I hope this makes sense. Our self is always intruding in our experience with God. We even reshape the gospel to be what we want it to be instead of letting it be what it is. So let me mention a few characteristics of what I'm calling my gospel. And some of these may have come to your mind when I asked you a few minutes ago, well, what is the gospel? A few characteristics of this my gospel. One, it might center almost solely on the problem of sin and guilt and on Jesus' death to secure forgiveness for my sins. So my gospel has to do primarily with getting my sins forgiven. My response, yes, indeed it does, but there is so much more. Maybe it centers on the future, in particular what's going to happen to me after I die, where I'm going to spend eternity. So my gospel has to do with securing my spot in a luxury box instead of in the basement. Yes, certainly part of it, but there's so much more. Could be that my gospel centers on the second coming of Jesus, when he will right all the wrongs and that we see in the world, and he will take his people away to this place called heaven. So my gospel has to do with the culmination of all things and the ending of the world. And we would respond and say, yes, it does but there's so much more. Maybe my gospel centers on believing the right things that are consistent with the Bible. So my gospel has to do with right doctrine. And we would say, yes, right doctrine matters, but there's so much more. Maybe my gospel centers on doing the right things to make this broken world better. So my gospel is about confronting social injustice and making the world a better place. And we would say, yes, it has something to do with that. But there is so much more. Maybe my gospel has to do with being a good person. So my gospel is about loving others and doing good to them. So my gospel is about being good. And we would say, yes, 
It is sort of, but there's so much more. See, in any version of my gospel, some part of the gospel, heaven, forgiveness, second coming, right doctrine, becomes the whole of the gospel. A chapter in the story, if you will, becomes the entire book. See, my gospel, whatever the version is, at least the ones I mentioned, there's truth in those gospels. Forgiveness, heaven, second coming, right doctrine are all true and have their place. But the good news is so much more than any one piece of my gospel. It's crucial that we keep this in mind and go back to Mark 1.15 where Jesus says, the time has come the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And again, I'd like us to hear this in the context of the vast Roman Empire that ruled the entire Mediterranean world and people were used to good news being announced about emperor so-and-so reigning and ruling and defeating this and being king and lord of all of this. Hear this again, Jesus' words in light of that context. The time has come, meaning back in what Paul said, the good news announced throughout the Old Testament has finally reached its culmination. The kingdom of God has come near. The reign of God, the rule of God has come near in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And the people in the first century who had ears to hear this, they heard it in light of the current world in which they were living where the kingdom of Rome was in charge and Caesar or Tiberius or Nero or whichever emperor was king and was Lord, but no more. God's good news was about the kingdom of God breaking in through the person of Jesus Christ and the power of this king surpassed the power of every other king. His resurrection then, where he displayed his power, inaugurated a whole new world. God's make the world right project is now really underway. And the good news includes God's make you right project. It's about the reign of God over one's life in the midst of whatever circumstances one is facing. God's reign then transforms us into the people we were made to be and into the people we want to be. When we think about what do I want, what do I long for, God's good news provides the door and the path to discover it. So lastly, the gospel changes everything. See, when we're beginning to dial into the gospel of God and grasp its implications, every bit of our lives starts to get rearranged and the world looks different. Our lives look different. Our lives feel different. Something new, something fresh, something dynamic, something compelling, something winsome, something transformative begins to happen. And indeed, it feels too good 
to be true. This doesn't obviously happen overnight. But when the gospel starts to break in, when God's good news starts to get down into the depths of who we are, we can feel it. We can sense it. Something new. Something fresh. There's a kind of freedom. There's a kind of transformation. 20 years ago in the summer of 2000, someone that I respect was going through some of this. And when this started to hit me after one particular time, I raced up to the guy afterward and I looked at him and I said, this sounds too good to be true. 17 years following Jesus. I'd been through a master's program in seminary. I was a pastor at a church and the gospel was grabbing me in a fresh way. And I said, this sounds too good to be true. And he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget his words. He said, well, it is very good and it is very true. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The good news, this is in your app, by the way. The good news looks, looks crazy and shameful when you try to fit it into any other way of looking at the world. But if you let it get inside you, or perhaps we should say, if you stand inside it and look out at the world, then suddenly you see everything else in a new way, a way that makes sense of everything, startling, shocking sense, a sudden and scary clarity. This is what Paul means by the power of the good news. It does things to people. It transforms them. Something happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Someday, something will happen when he returns to finish his work and make all things new. And right now, literally, right now, in the present, something is happening. King Jesus is reigning right now. And he's inviting you and he's inviting me to bring our pain and struggle and past and our desires and all of our questions and our sins and our guilt and our broken relationships to bring them to him who is the king of the universe and lay them down at his feet because he is powerful more powerful than any other power. And he has the power to heal. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to transform us. He has the power to make new in us what is old and heavy. Look at this pandemic. Look at this election. If we look at it from one direction, it's daunting. If we look at it from one direction, it's overwhelming. But when we stand inside the good news and look at the pandemic, or we stand inside the good news and look at the election, we are reminded, wait a minute, Jesus Christ is king over all things in this universe. That includes a pandemic. That includes an election. That includes anything that we might be dealing with. And Jesus Christ is in the process of restoring 
and redeeming and making all things new and all things right. And we have the chance to bring ourselves and all the broken bits of our lives to him so his power can be at work in those things. I believe this was N.T. Wright. I actually don't know where I found this, but I think it was N.T. Wright. When the gospel takes root in us, this good news goes deep into our hearts and minds, truly making all the difference in the world as it influences how we think, make personal decisions, endure hardships, or navigate conflict. Our worries and problems can become part of the tapestry of God's work to recreate his beautiful world as we pray and lend our energies to his good purposes to flood all of creation with the beauty of Easter morning. Jesus, our King, is the true good news for every person in the whole world. And I got to tell you, I know this is a strange time, but this good news is worth giving everything you got to. It's worth experiencing in the fullest way we can. It's worth inviting others in a winsome, glad, joyous, invitational way to check this out. Because this is when we begin to really live. And this is when being Christian starts to take on a flavor and a depth and an experience that perhaps we've not yet had. Well, this is the perfect day for us to come and celebrate the Lord's table because this is what the Lord's table is all about. It's about Jesus Christ, who is the king over everything. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul once again, and again, hear this in light of the first century, Roman emperor, Roman rule, kingdom of Rome. Here comes the Apostle Paul. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above Caesar's name or any other name. That at the name of Jesus, not Caesar, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul is both describing what should happen in light of who Jesus is, but when we think about that idea that something's going to happen in the future, I'd like us to get a picture of this, that he's also describing what will happen in the future. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge, yes, indeed, not Caesar, not the President of the United States, not cancer, not a pandemic, not an oppressive whomever, none of it, except Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the glory of the Father. And we now have the chance to eat this bread and drink this cup and proclaim him as king once more. So I know you got your communion stuff. Hopefully you brought it. If you didn't bring it, I think we supplied it. If you don't have it, um, 
the 1-800-COMMUNION and DoorDash will bring it to you. 